<laughs> if you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Let's read from chapter 1 and verse 15 through 21. Remind some of you what was preached uh, three weeks ago as we continue through this passage. Let's hear the word of God, verse 15 of Ephesians 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, now here are the requests, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, Number one. Number two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then verse 19, number three, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This morning and this evening we want to look at those three requests in verses 18 and 19 that Paul said he's praying for the Ephesians Let's listen first of all to a prayer meeting here uh, amongst us here maybe in other churches. What are some of the typical prayers of God's people? I hope I'm being fair as I relate this. Here's somebody praying. Lord, your servant is undergoing an operation. Please grant a speedy recovery and give the doctor's wisdom. Somebody else, oh Lord, uh, our family members are traveling. It's a good time to pray that, isn't it? As this has been the month of traveling, please give a safe and a trouble-free journey. Also, the time of exam results. So many have prayed like this. Uh, our sister is taking her final exams. Please help her to do well and fulfill her goals. Is anything wrong with those prayers? Is anything missing? I would even ask a much deeper question. Is there anything specifically Christian about them? And yet, I at least, I've heard that sort of thing uh, many times. It's not that it's wrong in and of itself, but it's certainly a tiny part of what should be prayed. 
At least, surely we are Christians. There should be a spiritual component. Where's that idea of God taking me through various providences so that I can be a witness to him? What about the various circumstances of life being ordered by God so that I can grow, somebody else can grow as a Christian? What about the need for patience and for love and joy in those circumstances? What about eternity? which will be the beginning focus. Where in those prayers is there anything about the hope that we have in Christ, which is surely fundamental? Now, as we read from verse 15, you saw that Paul begins by thanking God that these Ephesians exhibit the mark of genuine Christianity. What's the mark of genuine Christianity? You see it there in verse 15. It's faith in the Lord Jesus and a continuing faith and love toward all the saints. So having established before God that these are genuine Christians, as I trust you are this morning, he goes on to say this Three things that I want you to know. It doesn't mean just ticking the box that I agree with that and it's knowledge that I have in that sense of facts. But he wants them to know these deeply in the knowledge of, of God himself. I believe these three things are desperately needed by us as God's people, as we are blinkered in our focus upon time, we, we tend just to see a little part of what we think is the future. So this morning, two things in verse 18. First of all, my friends, you need to know the hope to which he is Called you. You see that there in the middle of verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you. Hope has to do with something that you're going to receive in the future. Many of you young people, you hoped for whatever you meant by good exam results, didn't you? That was your goal as you worked and as that day of revelation came near. For the Christian, the hope has already been described in this chapter in verses 9 and 10. God has already made known to us the mystery of his will. Verse 9, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. What is it? It's his plan for the fullness of time. There's the eternal perspective already. What is it? To unite all things in Christ. 
things in heaven and things on earth. That's how he describes the great hope that we have in Christ. Later on in this letter, in chapter 4 and verse 4, in speaking of the unity of God's people, he talks of, uh, about the hope, the one hope that belongs to your call. We all have the same hope, don't we? That's what unites us together. We're on the same journey to the same goal. In Colossians, which is a letter very similar to Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, even if I had the tongue of an angel, I can't describe that to you. I, I don't think I can do better than read some verses from the Bible for you so that you enjoy, you feast again this morning on the hope that is laid up in heaven for you. So in Revelation chapter 21, this is how it's described. It's a city and it's a bride. But here it is, verse 2 of Revelation chapter 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Wow. That's something that uh, we look forward to at a wedding where I was on Tuesday. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And here's the most beautiful picture. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Like a parent with the, the child on, it, on his lap, taking out the, the handkerchief and wiping the tears away. Don't cry anymore. Because there are no more tears in glory with God. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. You've read that. Uh, you, you know it's there. Paul says, I'm praying that you might know it, that it might grip you and become a part of your daily life. In First John, John's first letter, chapter 3, Verse 2, he says, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
We've never seen him, but when we do, then we should be transformed to be like him, the one of whom we read in the scriptures. We should be like him. And then finally, Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Don't you come from a week where we've groaned at times, haven't we? We've groaned about the condition of the world in which we live, both locally and internationally. Here's the promise of a new heavens and a new earth, wherein righteousness dwells, no sin at all. So here you have it, uh, put in biblical words, uh, God will be with us in a way that he's not with us today, in the closest possible way. We shall be like Christ. We shall never sin again whether in deed or word or thought. It's a great hope. Well, is that realistic? Or is that just pie in the sky uh, by and by, as people uh, often accuse us of? Well, what Paul says here is the hope to which he has called you. This is something... That is sure, because it's God who is called. It means that God has promised it. He's guaranteed this to us. You know that great verse of the Bible? For those whom he predestined in eternity, he also called. Doesn't stop there, does it? And all those, no more, no less, whom he called, he also Thank you. Justified. And those, no more, no less, whom he justified, he also glorified. And it's so certain it's spoken of as if it's already happened. So to say the hope to which he has called you is to say it's absolutely sure. And that will come again as we look at the second thing we need to know. Again, my friends, if God called you when you were dead in trespasses and sins, when you were his enemy, when he had every right to condemn you, if he called you to salvation by his grace, surely now that he has called you, you will receive the hope that he is laid before you. It's absolutely sure. Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? He didn't have one child. Not only did he not have one child, he, he was as good as dead, and his wife was barren, uh, and was way past the age of childbearing. But we read, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. 
the hope to which he has called you. God is fully able to do what is promised in that hope. So this is a question you've got to ask yourself. How do I know God has called me? If he's called me, that hope is mine. How do you know he's called you? Peter says, make your calling and election sure. When God calls a person, like Lazarus out of the tomb, God gives life so that Lazarus can obey the command and come out to follow Christ. Have you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that you've come out of your sin? You've turned your back on sin in order to follow Christ and to walk with him. That's what this calling means. He's called you out of the world. Do you know that's true of you? That you no longer want to follow this world and the sin of this world, but you want to follow Christ because he died for you. Then this hope is yours. So I've talked so far about hope in terms of that for which we are hoping. But of course the word hope also talks about being a hopeful person that you yourself have that character of hope. Many people can say, yes, I know the Christian has a great hope, but they don't have it themselves. They don't feel it in their own lives. Here in, again, chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul talks about those who were the first to hope in Christ. They put their hope in him and they became people of great hope. We know how important being hopeful is, don't we? You know those aphorisms, don't you? Hope springs eternal in the human heart. Because even when there's no reason for hope, where there's life, there's hope. Even we've got one in the scriptures, in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 4. He who is joined to all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. So that's rather like why there's life, there's hope, isn't it? So it's a recognition of the vital importance of being a, a hopeful person. But the trouble is the world is filled with hopelessness. Paul writes about the world in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. Those people who in the face of death, they sorrow with no hope. You read some of the things that people have written in Roman times uh, with uh, nothing beyond death to cheer them. Mind you, how many times have we heard people in the face of murders and so on? I'm devastated. That seems almost to be the key word today. I'm devastated. Our lives are destroyed, they say. I'll never get over it. I'll never be able to forgive. 
It's the sort of hopelessness that we have uh, in this world. Well, of course, the world has no basis for being hopeful. We're told that in India, because of debts, multitudes of farmers are committing suicide. They've no hope. There's no way they can repay the debts. So end, end your life. How many young people have hopes for the future, but it's not based on anything, oh, I want to be an engineer, they might say. But their, their performance in the uh, science is so poor. It's a ridiculous thing. They'll, they'll never get there, at least based on their present performance. When you look at yourself, what hope is there in you? Can you, uh, can you live the life that God wants you to live? Surely you only have to look back to this morning, yesterday, and know the failures. You promised God something and you've not succeeded. And if we look to ourselves, that is no basis for hope. And so what Paul is writing here is this, that whatever our circumstances are, whatever our past may be, we have hope because God has promised and God does not change. And the more we know this hope, the more easily, if I may use the language, we will skip through life. Because we'll be filled with joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so I'm, I'm urging upon us, I must include myself here. Seek to know this whole, let it be a part of you. Because these are the things that every Christian desires. If I tell you that... Uh, we are rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Don't you say, yes. That's what I want. If you smell from the kitchen your favorite food, that's a very ordinary thing. It excites you. You can't wait, we say. <laughs> so surely, as Christians, when we read that, there's glory ahead. No matter what our present circumstances are, we, we ought to be spiritually excited. Titus talks about the hope of eternal life at two times. First Thessalonians 5 talks about putting on the hope of salvation. And that's not when you were saved, that's when you're going to receive the final installment of salvation, when Jesus returns and your bodies will be made new and raised from the dead. And there should be somewhat of a smile on our faces, shouldn't there? Oh, what a privilege we have as Christians. <clears throat> so let me say, then we've looked at the hope itself, that makes us to be people who are filled with hope. But why is this so important? 
Because this is what Paul prays for. Why should you be praying this, I, and why should we be praying this as a church? And I question whether we ever do. It was because of hope that Abraham was able to obey God. You remember what Hebrews 11 says? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. It's saying he wasn't simply going to Canaan, but he knew he was journeying to a far better country than that. What about uh, Moses? Look in verse 26. How did Moses refuse Egypt and identify himself with the sufferings of the people of God. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It was the reward, the glory that enabled him, not simply to reject Egypt, but to suffer with the people of God. What enabled these Hebrews to whom... Uh, the writer is writing who undergoing such persecution, the sort of persecution that we've not known. <clears throat> it says, you had, verse 34 of Hebrews 10, for you had compassion on those in prison. People have been in prison for Christ. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That sort of happened in Pakistan the other day, didn't it? What if you got back home and you found, because you're a Christian, your home was empty? Everything had been taken away, plundered, stolen. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How could they do that? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you see how important this is? It enables you to go through anything in this life. How will you be able to pursue holiness the rest of this year and beyond if the Lord tarries? Even our Lord Jesus, he endured the cross. How did he do it? For the joy that was set before him. As Paul writes to the Corinthians and he tells them about the resurrection of the dead, he says, your labor will not be in vain because of the resurrection. So he says, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's because you know there's a resurrection coming. So the Bible's full of this, isn't it? And we are, if I may use the word, we are foolish in the proper sense of the word. When we ignore that, when we don't make it central, it is those who are most heavenly minded who are of the most earthly use, isn't it? As opposed to what's normally said. So I urge you, labour to have this knowledge labor to read the scriptures 
Ask, as Paul did, for God to enlighten your, the eyes of your heart. This is not automatic. It needs to grip our hearts and become part of us. So let's pray these things for one another. Let, let it be our prayer meeting on Wednesday. No. Thursday. <laughs> yes. Um, <clears throat> When we pray, don't pray as if, God, will you please take away all the difficulties and let life get back to normal? Because actually that's not normal, is it? Uh, but pray uh, in view of the glory that's to come, that your circumstances of today are preparing you for that, this is 2 Corinthians 4, for that eternal weight of glory which is beyond all comparison. May I read to you a few verses from Romans? Because do you know how often this comes up as Paul is writing? <clears throat> Look at Romans 5. Please don't tire of looking at different passages. It's so essential in order to, to, to illustrate and to press the truth on you. <clears throat> I've already quoted Romans 5 too. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's an amazing little passage there. We're justified. We, we've become Christians. We've accepted by God. Paul jumps over the whole Christian life and says, because of that being saved, being justified, we're now rejoicing in hope of glory. You've got it in verse 9. Same chapter 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his, by his blood, he looks forward. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We might say, uh, much more will he be with us in our Christian lives, which is true. But it's the glory he's talking about. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 24, dealing with the struggles that the Christian has with the flesh. He says, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, my great problem is the sin that dwells in me which expresses itself through the flesh. How can I get rid of it? Well, of course, we're going to struggle now. But there's the hope, isn't it? Re uh, thanks be to God, verse 25, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then look at chapter 8. It's so many times in chapter 8. Uh, verse 11, he says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, do you have the spirit of God indwelling you? Then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. <clears throat> There's two steps in salvation, Paul says. First of all, uh, if Christ is in you, the spirit is life because of righteousness. That's the first thing. But it doesn't affect your body. The second step of salvation is when you are fully saved, as it were, and your body is made new. It's resurrected. <clears throat> Verse 17. If you're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There it is. Uh, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. How do, how do we cope with suffering? Because of the glory. It's over and over and over again. Verse 23. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we're not just waiting, ticking a box. If I can use the colloquial language, we can't wait for the redemption of our bodies because that's our great problem. Verse 30, finally, already quoted it. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see how much uh, Paul pays attention to this aspect? It's got to be so upfront and central for us. So that's the first thing. Back to Ephesians chapter 1. We must know the hope to which he's called us. And secondly... We need to know that we are God's glorious inheritance. I'm going to have to deal with a little bit of translation here. These words in verse uh, 18, as in my ESV translation says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that's been taken in two ways. It's been taken as this is the glorious inheritance that we saints have. Or, because it says it's his inheritance, this is God's inheritance, which is us. And I do believe that is what it's saying. And I've got these three uh, quick reasons. First of all, it's not again talking about the inheritance that we have. That's already in the first request, isn't it? The hope to which he has called you. And then uh, uh, secondly, it's his glorious inheritance Maybe this will be a little difficult, but in verse 14, if you had the NIV or uh, you, if you've got the ESV and you've got a note, probably number five, at the bottom, instead of translating it um, until we acquire possession of it, that is our inheritance, it's until God redeems his possession I don't think it's the place to deal with that in great detail, but uh, that's the way I'm taking this. And uh, even if I was proved to be wrong, what I'm going to say to you is an undoubted biblical truth. The, and this is my third reason for, for this. The Old Testament people of God not only had Canaan as their inheritance... They themselves were God's inheritance. You'll be surprised how often, say in the Psalms, they're called God's heritage. But if you would like to turn near the beginning of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 9, 
First of all, chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, first of all, verses 20 and 21. You've got both of these here. <clears throat> As Moses speaks to them, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse uh, 20, he says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. So you've got both of those things there. Uh, let me not give you more except one in the New Testament, in Peter's first letter and chapter 2 and verse 9. He uses the Old Testament language, and this is what he says of the Christians to whom he's writing. He says, you are, chapter 2, verse 9 of First Peter, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So, you see very clearly, this is a biblical truth. God possesses his people as an inheritance. And that's an amazing uh, conception, isn't it? Why should God call us his inheritance? An inheritance is something very precious, is it not? Uh, receiving uh, what our parents say uh, have and they, they bequeath it to us. And it's a strange thing to say of God because uh, an inheritance is received on the death of the giver. But of course the word inheritance speaks of the will of the giver and it's legally binding. The executor is supposed to just follow the terms of the will as they've been written uh, by uh, the one writing it. So let's just think of a few of the implications of the fact that we, as God's people, are his inheritance. First of all, it speaks of grace. Although it's strange because God is both the giver and the receiver. He gives to himself, as it were, and he does it simply because he loves us. There's nothing in us that makes him want to desire us and make us special. It's he who makes us special indeed. It's simply as, again, Deuteronomy 7 says, I've loved you simply because I've loved you. He delights to make us his, uh, his inheritance. But it also means that this is something eternal. Wills are set there legally. An inheritance is something that you have. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, Romans says. What can rob God of his prize possession? I mean, we are the apple of his eye, aren't we? Amazingly. If God has redeemed us through the cost of giving his son for us, what can possibly take away ourselves being God's possession? And then 
it's very, very much linked with eternal. It's certain. The inheritance uh, depends upon the giver, and it's given without retraction. This makes this state that we're in absolutely certain. And you notice, Paul is not content just to use the word uh, inheritance. He adds that it's glorious in the end of chapter 1 and verse 18. He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Uh, It's glorious, that should be enough. But then as Paul so often does, he adds the word riches. When the Lord Jesus returns, he returns to be glorified in his saints. As the work of redemption is finished in you and me, taking us from our being dead in sin, our our wickedness, and working on us through the various providences in our lives, and bringing us to that final day when our bodies will be made new like Christ, he'll be glorified because of what he's done. Take a craftsman, the sort of people I've watched in Kenya who take a bit of wood, just an ordinary piece of wood, and they get the hammer and the chisel out. They work painstakingly on it with, with their skill. And wow! Out comes a giraffe. And you, you marvel how someone could do such a thing. What do you do? You praise the craftsman, don't you? What a skilled man, usually, uh, that he is. And that's true here. We belong to him that we might be perfected. And on that day when he comes... He will, uh, um, he will be glorified. There's an occasion in the, uh, in the Old Testament uh, about a king called Ahasuerus. He wanted to display uh, his glory. So we read in Esther that he wanted to show the riches of his royal glory. And he invited people from all over. I don't know how many were there, but for 180 days... They feasted and they feasted. Royal glory was one thing, but this was glory out of the ordinary. But it pales into insignificance compared with what God is doing in us. Now, why is that so important to know? Because that's the context here, isn't it? He's praying, oh, that you might know that you belong to God in a special way, you're called his possession, his inheritance. It tells you how precious you are to God. It tells you the value that God puts upon you. I mean, you may look at yourself and say, how can that be? But that's what the scripture says. That is why God sent his son to die for you. That's why he puts his spirit in you. That's why when he comes again, he will make you totally new. 
Consider then what God thinks of you. Will not, will not that wipe away, even now, so many of your struggles? To know that someone loves you and finds you precious, who will do anything for you that's needed. Isn't that something that will help you in your Christian life to overcome whatever your circumstances might be this morning? God has been working with you in his plan from eternity. And he's not going to fail. He, he chose you in Christ from before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and without blame before him. In love, he predestined you to be adopted as his sons. This is a God who's been planning this from eternity. He's going to complete it in eternity. You have no, no need to fear. Nothing's going to separate you from his love. God is not going to turn around and say to you, I've had enough of you. You've been so unfaithful. And we, we can say that about ourselves, can't we? God's got every reason to reject every one of us. But he's guaranteed he's not going to do it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death itself. And certainly no suffering, no trial. He will see us through. The Bible says the earth and its works will be dissolved. But we will be with him forever. Therefore, comfort one another with these.